Welcome to Washington Today for Monday, March 13th, 2023. I'm Gary Sterkoff. Thanks a lot for joining us today. At the White House, President Biden promised quick action by the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Department, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation following the collapse of both Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. He also assured Americans that the U.S. banking system is safe. Members of Congress from both sides of the aisle are reacting to this weekend's bank's bank failures and President Biden's response, with members of the Senate Finance Bank Finance Banking Committees weighing in, plus the chair of the House Financial Services Committee. And the Pentagon unveiled its proposed 2024 budget today, asking Congress to counter China and increasing weapons production, depleted in part by the ongoing war in Ukraine. We begin at the White House, where President Biden laid out how his administration is taking action to contain the collapses of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. He spoke this morning from the Roosevelt Room. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. Last week, when we learned of the problems of the banks and the impact they could have on jobs of small businesses and banking systems overall, I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. They've done that. They've done that. On Friday, the government regulator in charge, the FDIC, took control of Silicon Valley Bank's assets. And over the weekend, it took control of Signature Bank's assets. Treasury Secretary Yellen and the team of banking regulators have taken action, immediate action. And here are the highlights. First, all customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills, and stay open for business. No losses will be, and I want, this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Because of the actions of that, because of the actions that our regulators have already taken, Every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Second, the management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. And fourth, there are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. In my administration, no one, in my no one is above the law. And finally, we must reduce the risk of this happening again. During the Obama-Biden administration, we put in place tough requirements on banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank including the Dodd-Frank law, to make sure that the crisis we saw in 2008 would not happen again. Unfortunately, the last administration rolled back some of these requirements. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again. 
and to protect American jobs and small businesses. Look, the bottom line is this. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. Let me also assure you, we will not stop at this. We'll do whatever is needed on top of all of it. Let's also take a look at a moment to put the situation in a broader context. We've made strong economic progress in the past two years. We've created more than 12 million new jobs, more jobs in two years than any president has ever created in a single four-year term. Unemployment is below 4 percent for 14 straight months. Take-home pay for workers is going up, especially for lower- and middle-income workers. And we've seen record numbers of people apply to start new businesses, more than 10 million of them, more than 10 million applications over the last two years starting businesses. Now we need to keep the program, this progress, going. That's what swift action that my administration over the past few years is all about, protecting depositors, protecting the banking system, protecting the economic gains we've made together for the American people. Thank you. God bless you. And may God protect our troops. See you in California. Now, while, uh, while relatively known outs- unknown outside of Northern California, Silicon Valley Bank was among the top 20 American commercial banks last year. It reported $209 billion in total assets. And it also provided financing for almost half of U.S. venture-backed technology and healthcare companies. It's the largest lender lender to fail since Washington Mutual collapsed in 2008. And reaction from Capitol Hill has been swift. Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren wrote a New York Times op-ed today saying that Republicans should not be advocating to lower capital requirements from banks that the Trump administration had walked back. And on Fox News, Senate Finance Committee member and Republican Bill Cassidy of Louisiana placed much of the blame on the president himself. By the way, this is a direct result of the Biden inflationary policy. Inflation's going up, the Fed has to raise rates, and when the Fed raises rates, these banks are being caught in the undertow. And so Biden can go back to his $1.9 trillion kind of blow it out the budget, and you can draw a straight line to Signature and SVP going down. Hey, let me just say this. Uh, does it bother you the CEO dumped $3.5 million worth of stock the day before? Does it bother you that the, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank had no risk assessment manager for nine months? It absolutely bothers me. A friend of mine texted last night and he goes, um, wait a second. Um, you no longer have to run a bank prudently. You can just run it the way you want, and then the federal government's going to step up. So I think that's, one, important that we not have taxpayer dollars involved. But number two, you got to look at that CEO. Hmm, little insider trading action going on. And they also they all got bonuses. Plus, we knew the inflation was going to go up. We knew rates were going to go up. So if we know that, how could the head of a bank not know that and their board not know that and not make adjustments? I'm I'm told that the people selling short, betting that the stock was going down, which meant that they looked at the financials months ago and they traced it, made $500 million. Wow. That's unbelievable. So so this was not a surprise. This was predictable. Senate Finance Committee member and Louisiana Republican Bill Cassidy speaking on Fox News. Meanwhile, House Financial Services Chair Patrick McHenry of North Carolina tweeted today, quote, this was the first Twitter-fueled bank run. At this time, it is important to remain level-headed and look at the facts, not speculation, when assessing the right path forward. I have confidence in our financial regulators and the protections already in place to ensure the safety and soundness of our financial system. And here's Democrat John Garamendi, who represents part of Northern California. 
I am so pleased with the president, uh, not dithering, not taking a lot of time, but acting very aggressively to uh, put in place a very solid financial backing for the bank uh, at a time when the bank was actually investing in good, solid securities that were driven down as a result of the rapid rise in interest rates by the Federal Reserve. But in terms of perhaps longer term, what sort of policies should be put in place to perhaps either improve stress tests or give a bit more clarity so that if we can, try and avoid a repeat of this happening? Well, first of all, uh, the Dodd-Frank legislation actually uh, covered small and medium as well as the very large banks. Uh, in 2017-18, the uh, Trump administration and the Republicans removed the medium and small banks from that same regulatory regime. And so they were left out there with some regulation, but not the same kind that the Dodd-Frank and the very large banks uh, had to deal with. Uh, that may be part of the problem. But I think a much bigger piece of the problem was the fact that, these, that this particular bank appears to have most of its assets in government bonds, uh, U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, those, unfortunately, for the bank, had a very low interest rate. As the interest rate was pushed up over and over and over again by the Federal Reserve, the value of those particular, that is the nominal immediate value, uh, was significantly reduced. Now, if they were held to maturity, they'd be worth whatever the face value was. But that wasn't the case. As the run started, they had to sell those assets at a very uh, at a deep discount. The result was a failure of the bank. So there are several failures here that need to be taken into account. The regulatory regime had been removed. We had gone back and we should revisit this and put back in place a regulatory regime for small and large banks because contagion can start anywhere. And secondly, we need the Federal Reserve needs to be very, very much aware of what it is doing. Right now, the chairman is basically looking to eliminate two million jobs that is, create unemployment to drive down inflation. Well, simultaneously, what he managed to do uh, with that uh, rapid increase in interest rates was to uh, put banks in jeopardy. California Democrat John Garamendi also speaking on Fox News. And some members are already calling for congressional action. One of those, Florida Republican Corey Mills. Congressman, the president is talking about beefing up regulations, not directly, but that's certainly being intimated by his Treasury Secretary and others. Do you think they're warranted here? Well, I think that, Neil, we certainly need to look at certain regulations to ensure the safety of individuals who are depositors. I think when it comes to investors, they're kind of at their own risk. You know, it's like the community pool of swim at your own risk. Well, bank and invest at your own risk. But it's really interesting to me, Neil, that you have so many Americans who will go on these tirades about uh, M&Ms or Nike or the woke uh, businesses that are out there. And, you know, the co-founder for Home Depot, Bernie Marcus, really hit on this. You know, our banking is something that we should be looking at very highly as well, what their actual risk lending procedures are, whether or not it is one of the wokest banks who is looking at prioritizing uh, certain ESG-based uh, investments, which have had very poor returns on investment, as opposed to kind of your more traditional lending. And so I think that we have to start looking at this. But Neil, what really disturbs me is two things. We saw what happened in the 2008 recession where we bailed out tons of banks, tons of investment lenders, 
And instead of putting the necessary wording in place, they were awarding themselves with bonuses and payouts for failure. And we saw this with the recent CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, where he just he cashed out with almost two and a half million dollars in profits, knowing the bank was in failure. Why wasn't his first thing to do to alert the depositors and alert his clients and the patrons as opposed to thinking about his own independent wealth and bonuses for everyone who's in the bank for failure? Florida Republican Corey Mills speaking on Fox Business today. Meanwhile, former Clinton administration Treasury Secretary Larry Summers says he has faith in regulators. I'm uh, very optimistic that Michael Barr, who was recently uh, came into the position of being the vice chair of supervision of the Fed, who has a lot of experience. He was involved in authoring uh, Dodd-Frank from a perch in the Treasury uh, Department. He worked with me back in the Clinton administration in the Treasury Department, and he's been studying these matters for the last 20 years. I think he has a major opportunity and a major obligation to really provide leadership to the entire regulatory uh, system, because what's happened here raises very fundamental issues about how we judge an institution to be in uh, good standing and how much testing we subject uh, institutions uh, to. And I think there's no question that we all have a stake in the banking system. But after what we have just seen, where basically the U.S. government has signaled to all the depositors, large and small, in all the banks, that their deposits are going to be safe, that's a sign that we can't rely on market discipline now. We're going to have to rely much more on regulatory discipline, and that places real responsibilities on the regulators. Former Clinton Administration Treasury Secretary Larry Summers speaking on MSNBC. And reaction to the president's speech is also coming from 2024 presidential candidates, with Republican Nikki Haley tweeting, quote, Joe Biden is pretending this isn't a bailout. It is. Now depositors at healthy banks are forced to subsidize Silicon Valley Bank's mismanagement. When the deposit insurance fund runs dry, all bank customers are on the hook. That's a public bailout. Depositors should be paying by selling off Silicon Valley Bank's assets, not by the public. Taxpayers should not be responsible. That's a tweet from 2024 Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley. And this from Republican Vivek Ramaswamy. He is running for president, and he is also the co-founder and executive chairman of an asset management firm. Well, I think a deep part of this story is the failed Federal Reserve over the course of the last several decades in our country. The Federal Reserve has been playing God, but they're playing God with a fat finger. They haven't been doing a very good job of playing God for the financial system, supposedly balancing unemployment and inflation. That's a flawed construct. And as president, Steve, my goal is actually to return the Federal Reserve back to its narrow mission of restoring the dollar as a unit of measurement. The Federal Reserve has failed for the last couple of decades. But as Mm -hmm. president, I intend to deliver that. And I think that's actually one of the underappreciated levers to driving GDP growth again in this country. You'll hear the debate about higher taxes versus spending cuts. That's almost the wrong debate to have because we're not talking about the thing we should be talking about, which is GDP growth. 
And in weird ways, the Federal Reserve has actually become an obstacle to GDP growth itself. That's one of the objectives that I expect to deliver as U.S. president. And again, more about the agenda at Vivek2024.com. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy speaking on Fox News. You're listening to Washington Today. Welcome back to Washington Today, an update on the health of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. This from his spokesperson, David Pop. Of course, Senator McConnell was hospitalized over the weekend following a fall and diagnosed with a concussion. Here's the statement. Quote, Leader McConnell's concussion recovery is proceeding well, and the leader was discharged from the hospital today. At the advice of his physician, the next step will be a period of physical therapy at an inpatient rehabilitation facility before he returns home. Over the course of treatment this weekend, the leader's medical team discovered that he also suffered a minor rib fracture on Wednesday, for which he is also being treated. The leader and Secretary Chow are deeply thankful for the skilled medical care, prayers, and kindness they have received. That is a McConnell office spokesman, David Pop, giving us an update on Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's condition following a uh, admission to the hospital following a fall. He mentions uh, former Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, who is Senator McConnell's uh, wife. Vice President Kamala Harris is going on the road later this month for a seven-day trip to Africa. The trip will run from March 25th to April 2nd and will take her to meet the leaders of Ghana, Tanzania, and Zambia. It comes after President Biden hosted a summit last month with African leaders here in Washington. Topics on Vice President Harris's agenda include preserving democracy, food security, and the impacts of Russia's war in Ukraine. House Oversight Chairman James Comer has subpoenaed Bank of America asking for records relating to three of Hunter Biden's business associates. News of the subpoena first surfaced after Oversight Ranking Member Jamie Raskin sent Chair Comer a letter alleging that committee Republicans are not fairly investigating the president's son and instead are conducting, quote, political opposition research on behalf of former President Trump. The subpoena calls for 14 years of financial records from Hunter Biden's business associates who, according to the letter, formed, quote, a joint venture with executives of a now bankrupt Chinese energy conglomerate. And President Biden announced an agreement today with the leaders of Great Britain and Australia to develop a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines. The move aims to strengthen naval forces in the Asia-Pacific region and marks the first concrete steps taken in a strategic partnership between the three nations that was announced a year and a half ago. With more, here is National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan speaking on Air Force One. What message does uh, the further development of AUKUS uh, send to China about U.S. commitment to the Indo-Pacific region, about countering China's own growing capabilities um, in the region? And are there any concerns um, that this uh, about Australia's sort of commercial warming of ties uh, with Beijing over the last uh, several months? Is this is the president going to raise that with Prime Minister Albanese to sort of urge more caution uh, in sort of restoring economic ties between Australia and China? AUKUS represents for Australia not just a long-term investment in nuclear-powered submarines, but a long-term investment in its alliance with the United States of America. Uh, This is a decades-long, maybe a century-long commitment, and it reinforces the fundamental uh, view we believe in Canberra that the United States and Australia standing shoulder-to-shoulder for the purposes of safeguarding peace and stability, not to provoke not to go try to fight wars, but rather to deter conflict and to promote peace and stability that Australia is stepping up to make that bet. So we have 
in fact, the opposite of concerns about the orientation of Australia right now. We think today is going to be a reflection and celebration of the deep investment our two countries are making in one another for the long term. And oftentimes when we talk about the long term, we talk about the next several years. In this case, we're talking about the next several decades. Then with respect to the PRC, in my opening comments, I made the fundamental point that President Biden is going to which is that the United States has played a historic role over decades in the Indo-Pacific to help ensure peace and stability, to ensure that there would not be the repeat of major power conflict that we saw in decades past. That was not an inevitability. That was not a foregone conclusion. That was the result of the United States helping to build and, and safeguard an operating system that has worked to the benefit of all countries, including ASEAN, the Pacific Islands, and yes, the PRC. And so AUKUS represents a look forward coming off of that look backward, meaning that uh, continuing to invest in these kind of capabilities over the coming decades will help us continue to play that role alongside key allies and partners that we have played for the last several decades. That's the message he's going to communicate today. It's not directed at any one country. It is an affirmative message and agenda to all the countries of the region and, frankly, to the wider world as well. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan talking to the media aboard Air Force One this afternoon on his way to San Diego with the president to make the announcement. This deal centers on Australia first buying the U.S. and British submarines before making their own. It marks the first time in 65 years the U.S. is sharing its own nuclear submarine technology. The Pentagon unveiled the details to its proposed 2024 budget today. The $842 billion plan is its largest proposal ever, and much of it centers on countering China and increasing weapons productions, depleted in part by the ongoing war in Ukraine. With more, here's Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks. In all, President Biden is increasing DOD's top line by about $100 billion over FY22 to implement the NDS with urgency and build the right mix of capabilities. Whether for tackling the pacing challenge from the People's Republic of China or confronting the acute threat of Russian aggression in Europe, deterring threats from Iran, North Korea and global terrorist organizations, or ensuring joint force effectiveness in the face of global challenges like climate change and biological threats. All of these are challenges DOD confronts every day. Our goal is to deter because competition does not mean conflict. Still, we must have the combat credibility to win if we must fight. So, first and foremost, this budget is a procurement budget. It puts its thumb on the scale in favor of game-changing capabilities that will deliver not just in the out years, but in the near term too. Our greatest measure of success, and the one we use around here most often, is to make sure the PRC leadership wakes up every day, considers the risks of aggression, and concludes, today is not the day. And for them to think that today and every day, between now and 2027, now and 2035, now and 2049 and beyond. This budget has many areas of critical investment, which our briefers will further describe, but I want to highlight several that are especially noteworthy. The first is a series of investments to strengthen our military's so-called kill chains and disrupt adversary kill chains, making it easier for us to see, sense, and shoot, and making it harder for adversaries to do that to us. These investments include a mix of munitions, platforms, communications, data links, 
and cyber tools, among other capabilities, married with novel operational concepts for how to employ them. Together, they not only strengthen how we project power across long distances and hold key targets at risk, including in highly contested environments, they also afford us the ability to disrupt potential adversaries at the military systems level, ensuring that in conflict, adversary forces will be less than the sum of their parts. In munitions alone, we're investing $30.6 billion in FY24, a nearly 12% increase above FY23 enacted. Compared to the Defense Department's budget request from just five years ago, we're putting nearly 50% more money into munitions. Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks, as she said, this year's proposal is more than last year's, $26 billion more to be exact. That budget request was also a record. Here's more from today's press conference with Deputy Secretary Hicks and Joint Chiefs Vice Chair Admiral Christopher Grady. How has China shaped this year's budget? Can you list one or two very specific priorities that are here now um, to face that challenge? And then for you both, um, at this current rate of growth, the Department of Defense budget will top a trillion dollars in just a matter of a few years. How can you explain to the American taxpayer why all of this money is needed and how it's still not enough? Because even in the next couple of weeks, you'll likely see the services go to Congress with unmet needs. So how is it that with this size of a budget, there's still, uh, the services still need so much? I'll go ahead and start, if sure. you mind, Madam Secretary. Well, thanks. Um, uh, I am the chairman of the Joint Requirements Oversight Committee, the JROC. Um, but that really starts with a straight line from strategy all the way down to budget. The requirements piece is just a part of that. And we are clearly focused on PRC as the pacing challenge. But let's go back to the joint warfighting concept, that strategy that devolves from the NSS, the NDS, and the NMS. And if you look at where our investments derived from those requirements are, um, uh, 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 are manifest, you look at the four key battles for advantage in fires, in command and control, in information advantage, and in contested logistics. So as the deputy mentioned, $11.11 billion in joint fires as an example, or $30.6 billion for munitions writ large under the fires um, uh, category. In command and control, um, JADC2 initiatives, where, which was so critical to tying all this together, about $1.4 billion there. Information advantage to include cyber and things like getting to a zero trust framework, framework about $13.5 billion. And then within contested logistics, um, $3 billion, uh, 15 KC, uh, one, uh, KC-46 alphas to modernize and recapitalize the air, airborne uh, refueling fleet. All of this derives from the work that the JROC does. Let me address the uh, resources piece. First of all, uh, staying focused really on the 24 budget, uh, we work very hard to make sure we can defend the value the taxpayer and the warfighter is going to get from any dollar that we put in. We do not take for granted or take lightly the trust and confidence of the American people <clears throat> in making sure to support the defense of the nation. At the same time, they have an expectation that there's going to be a defense of their interests uh, should the time come that they need to deploy or employ U.S. military forces, and we want to make sure we could deliver that. So that's why we put such emphasis on um, making clear that the, that the budget is strategy-derived. Um, 
less important to us is the input part, the top line. That becomes the big issue uh, inside the Washington debate often. But what we really care about is outcome. Can we deliver what we need to at the right time and place for the warfighter and do it in a way that's respectful of what the taxpayers have entrusted to us? Look, I've been around this um, uh, department a long time. There is no such thing as a no-risk budget. We've never been able to have that. We are not a a nation that lives in a no-risk world. But what we owe and we believe we have delivered here is a very uh, uh, um, uh, robust, ready, capable, combat credible, capable force that can pace against that challenge of the PRC, as I said, today, tomorrow, into the future. That's really our focus. Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks, along with Joint Chiefs of Staff Vice Chair Admiral Christopher Grady. The Pentagon's plan, of course, just part of the federal $6.8 trillion budget request President Biden unveiled last week. You can see the full DOD briefing and more of the tw- more from the 2024 Biden budget, including other department briefings and also congressional reaction at cspan.org. Finally today, it's the end of an era in Foggy Bottom. State Department spokesman Ned Price gave his last press briefing this afternoon. He's been the media's go-to on U.S. foreign policy since the Biden administration began. Here's what he had to say this afternoon. Now, if you'll bear with me, I have only seven or eight toppers to get through uh, today. Uh, no, actually, uh, I only have uh, one, as, uh, as many of you may have surmised, surmised. This will be my last on-camera briefing. And so with your forbearance, I want to spend just a, a couple minutes uh, offering some parting thoughts. As I was uh, thinking about what to say, I took a look back at my first briefing on February 2nd of 2021. Uh, I realized in doing so just how much has changed over the past couple of years. Uh, first, that briefing was only 38 minutes long. Uh, could you imagine? Uh, I know many of you have pined for those days. Uh, here's what else has changed. Uh, you were all so polite. You were introducing yourselves. You were limiting yourselves to a single question, to being judicious with uh, follow-ups. I've since pined for those days. Uh, And looking out on this room now, uh, there are many more of you than there were on February 2nd of 2021. Uh, Now, perhaps that has something to do with the fact that we've lifted the COVID capacity limits, uh, but again, it's my last briefing. Uh, So let me think for just a moment uh, that it has more to do with making this room the place to be for foreign policy reporters. Let the transcript reflect there was no laughter. That's great. Part of State Department spokesman Ned Price's final press briefing. You can see the entire briefing at cspan.org. In a statement last week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said in part, quote, For people in America and around the world, Ned Price has often been a face and voice of U.S. foreign policy. He's performed with extraordinary professionalism and integrity on behalf of the department. I thank Ned for his remarkable service. Before joining the State Department, Ned Price worked as a CIA analyst. He also was a spokesperson for the National Security Council during the Obama administration. He'll now work directly with Secretary Blinken in a new role. Current Deputy State Department spokesman Vedant Patel will take over briefings until a permanent replacement is named. A reminder, you can find this program as a podcast at cspan.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like more on the stories that are shaping Washington, subscribe to C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word. Just go to cspan.org forward slash connect to subscribe. I'm Gary Sterkoff. Thanks a lot for listening today to Washington Today. <laughs>